Beyond the Fence Line, a podcast brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. Created by landowners for landowners, we're proud to play a role in conserving the Texas legacy of wide open spaces. Hi, I'm Hannah Blankenship, TALT Stewardship Manager. Each conservation easement at TALT is tailored to meet each individual landowner's unique wishes. This may be to utilize the property for farming or livestock production, or to delineate a specific area for future building. I work to ensure these requests are upheld through annual monitoring. It is important to have support from individuals like you to continue our work here at TALT. If you haven't already, please donate to us today at www.txaglandtrust.org support. Well, welcome back to Beyond the Fence Line. Uh, this this episode is I'm extremely excited. We have uh, Debbie Reed, the Executive Director of the Ecosystem Service Market Consortium, with us. And, and Debbie and I go way back and um, kind of the start of ESMC. And so I'm I'm really excited about Debbie joining us and us having a conversation. And one. You know, sharing the conversation and, and where the ecosystem service markets have been in the past and where they are today and what it looks like in the future. I know a lot of our listeners and our landowners in Texas and beyond, uh, this is high on their topic and, and, and moving forward. So thank you, Debbie, for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Thanks for the invitation. And it's great to be talking to you about a subject near and dear to both our hearts that as you point out, we've been talking about um, for a long time. I'm happy to just jump in and talk a little bit about like ecosystem service markets and carbon markets, where we've been and why there is such excitement about those markets right now. Um, So for a little bit of history and perspective, I've actually been working in the uh, realm of carbon markets and ecosystem service markets for agriculture more than 25 years now, basically since the start of carbon markets. Um, And my focus has always been ag. And I will say I've seen more growth, more activity, more investment, and more excitement in carbon and ecosystem service markets exclusively or not exclusively, but especially for agriculture in the past three years than I have in the prior, you know, two plus decades. So Lots of interest, um, lots of excitement, and I think lots of exciting um, progress that um, just happened to be serendipitously about the time you and I were talking about starting an ecosystem service marketplace for agriculture that was basically designed and conceived for ag specifically. Um, One of the things that has not happened in the past is the scaling of these carbon and ecosystem service markets for a whole host of reasons, but especially as it relates to agriculture, because the markets were designed for point sources of pollution, which are much easier to measure and monitor, if you will. Agriculture is a biological uh, system, and so it's harder to measure and to monitor and to actually quantify outcomes from agriculture. That is why these markets have not scaled for ag in the past. Um, The other reason is that a lot of the market rules, as well as the protocols guiding how you actually put together projects and did the measuring, the monitoring, et cetera, were developed without the agricultural sector at the table. So the, um, the Ecosystem Service Market Consortium was literally designed to overcome those two big problems. 
And to look at ag as a biological system to understand that you need flexibility, you need to be working with the agricultural sector as well as everyone in the, the supply chain and value chain for agriculture to actually make markets work for producers who are an essential party for um, supply in these markets and then ensure that we're meeting the needs um, of buyers like the demand side in a marketplace. So that's how we started. Um, where we are right now is we started by literally designing what the market would look like and then started piecemeal building the actual marketplace. Um, we were fortunate enough to get a uh, pretty large $20.6 million grant from the Foundation for Food and Ag Research in 2019. And with that, we created a public-private partnership that right now is over 80 members strong across the entire ag supply chain and value chain. And we have built out the market uh, to the point where we are now ready to launch our um, full-scale market program uh, next year in 2022. That's crazy to think about this, Debbie. I mean, first off, you started when you were like about eight or 10 years old. It sounds like. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, but I think too, is, you know, you think about when you and I met there in Ardmore, Oklahoma, um, 2017. And so, you know, we've put a lot of work and you've put a lot of work and dedication and, uh, and many others. I mean, there was a a lot of partners, I know, you know, kind of the, some of the times when I was leading it in the beginning stage, I think we were over 300 individuals from across, like you mentioned, that were producers all the way to buyers from corporations and scientists and everybody in between. Um, and it's exciting to know that we're, you know, months away of, of launching and uh, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you're right. So going back to those discussions in Ardmore, Oklahoma, I will say <laughs> When you called and asked me to come join those discussions and talk about carbon markets for agriculture, you may recall my response was, no, thank you, I'm done with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, because the rules don't work, the, you know, the investments yeah. that need to be made haven't been made. And your invitation back was, well, let's do that then. Um, exactly. And so here we are, right? So yeah. um, absolutely, that's what it took was recognition that we needed to rethink the system. And so, you right. know, kudos to you for the vision um, and for, you know, helping us get to where we are now. Well, our first guiding principle was what we wouldn't back down from a challenge, right? And we were going to break glass and make, make the system work and not just keep doing how we've always done business. And that, as you mentioned and articulated very well from a point source to an ag biological system, that we have to take different approaches. And um, my hat's off to you and everyone else in the process of, of staying on task and trying to make this thing work and, and actually developing a system that I think will, will work as, as we move forward. So it's a very, very exciting. Um, you know, I think often folks are surprised when you find out who's at the table, you know, when we think about ecosystem service marketplace arena. And there's really a diverse group of stakeholders who are engaged here. So I want you to kind of unpack and maybe talk about who's all at the table. You mentioned there's 80 members of ESMC and, and you know, who are those members and, you know, where are they from, I guess, in, in essence? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, um, we typically talk about our members as being across the egg supply chain and value chain. 
like um, organizations as well as individuals who are engaged in growing and producing food, feed, fuel, fiber, but also purchasing it, processing it, making it into food that you know we see in the grocery um, store shelves, um, but also all of the inputs that go into agriculture. So we have some large corporations such as General Mills and Nestle and Danone and Cargill, right? Who play different roles. They're, all, they're not just the consumer facing food companies, but Cargill is much more of an integrator in the system, right? And has a footprint across uh, livestock as well as grain production, et cetera. But we also have um, all the major agriculture production groups. So that National Cattlemen and Beef Association and the National Association of Wheat Growers, American Soy Association, National Corn Growers Association, American Farm Bureau Federation, right? And um, we also have land-grant universities who are very interested in the science side of this and major environmental NGOs, such as the Nature Conservancy and the World Wildlife Fund. And then we have lots of uh, what I would call additional stakeholders really um, interested in what we are interested in, which is scaling beneficial outcomes from agriculture in a way that meets societal needs. So contributes to human health, but also meets the current huge and significant demand from corporations and countries to improve our environmental footprint, whether for climate change or water quality, water use conservation, um, and biodiversity. So our stakeholders represent all of those groups, as well as United States Department of Agriculture, the Department of Energy, um, the Foundation for Food and Ag Research. And we have increasingly state departments of conservation and environmental quality joining us as well, both as buyers and as members. So it's a really exciting place where we are all figuring out our individual but collective roles in food generation production all the way through to consumption, but also how we can work together um, as a collaborative to create that environmental, you know, improved environmental footprint, right? And generate in a science-based and standards-based market, generate credits that have high integrity, high quality, and um, that corporates actually need to show how uh, their actions in the agricultural supply chain and value chain are in fact contributing to these beneficial societal outcomes. Yeah, I think so many points are, I mean, it's hard to unpack everything you said. I think it's just exciting. I think the key to it is you brought everyone that looks at this through a different lens, right? And you brought everybody together and consortium of a collaboration. And I think the key piece is it's science-based and you're building a marketplace from a producer's perspective, but also the buyer side. And I think it's important. And I think a lot of times in the failures in the past, it's been one-sided. And um, I, I appreciate the approach and, and where you've, you've taken this. You know, and I think too, when we think of these ecosystem service marketplaces and, and people you know, look at TALT for us, for example, you know, these, it's, it's very important for TALT and, and our members and landowners in Texas. And, you know, when we, and, and a lot of people, I would say that look at from the outside looking in would say a group like TALT, you know, who's our bread and butter is conservation easements, you know, really maybe seem like a stretch for us 
wanting to participate and be a part of these ecosystem service markets. But really when we look at it, Debbie, I mean, when you break it down, our mission here at Talt is really focused about keeping working lands working and keeping those families together and that heritage and legacy. And ecosystem services is just another tool in the toolbox. And, you know, you and I've had these conversations of how easements and the marketplace kind of come together and how the roles of both of the tools, I think, intertwine. And we're at that, that stage, I think, in this space where um, it's exciting. Yeah, you know, you bring up a very good point, and, and that is uh, how do we both improve working agricultural lands, but increasingly protect them first and foremost? Right. Um, and, you know, I, I've been down to visit, you know, your, your, um, your organization and some of the operations you're working with in Texas, and you have brought to my attention and others the huge pressure from development that working agricultural lands face, not only in the Southern Great Plains, but the entire Great Plains and frankly, the entire country. And I will say that is a hugely overlooked issue because while some of us are working really hard to improve agricultural lands, we are seeing them disappear. So it's really important that we can join forces and make everyone in our ecosystem of members, but also in the public sector as well, understand that we can work as hard as we can, but none of us will be successful if we actually don't protect those agricultural lands. In the past in markets, easements were viewed as not a optimal tool for how we um, operate in markets, but increasingly there's recognition that, um, as you point out, easements are a, not only a beneficial tool, but there's increasing recognition that they are perhaps one of the best tools we have because they do ensure that all of the investments that you put into operations will be preserved um, and not just be torn up, whether for development or, or some other purpose. So there's recognition and I'm seeing more market instruments that are actually rewarding leases and easements and um, it, providing a recognition that financing even that goes into easements is something that can contribute to the claims that the corporates have to show, um, you know, report every year to show that they are in fact doing something that has beneficial outcomes. So, you know, one of those serendipitous things again, Chad, is that <laughs> we just happen to be operating in a time when there's growing recognition of the value of easements in particular. Yeah, most definitely the stars are aligning and, and it's exciting times for sure. You know, I think, you know, I think another, I, I think another misnomer is that the concept of these ecosystem services is new. And, and you kind of talked about how long you've been in the space and love to hear more of, you know, how long, you know, maybe dive in a little bit more of how long and, and some of these issues and why is everything finally aligning? the stars aligning now. Yeah, well, so uh, the carbon markets in particular started about 25 years ago when countries, right? So at the national level, over 190 countries of the world uh, operating under the UN agreed to start taking action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so carbon markets sprung up as a way to both recognize that some 
emission reductions are very, very costly to make. And some highly um, greenhouse gas intensive industries have long-term capital investment turnover, like 50, 60 years, right? And they just can't turn on a dime. So the carbon market sprung up with the idea that we can work on lower cost sources of emission reductions while those industries make um, investment turnover. So that's been kind of happening in the background, but never at a volume to make these markets really liquid, right? We don't see liquidity in the markets now. Right. Um, so there wasn't enough demand side there. What has really changed, so those markets have been coming together. Um, there has been ongoing work in the markets. Um, they just really didn't scale. What has changed is huge demand now with corporations, the private sector now taking on commitments analogous to what countries have been doing at the national scale for a couple of decades. You now have major corporations, both you know, based here in the United States, but multinational, um, uh, multinational corporations also taking on the same sort of commitments that governments were previously doing and putting a lot of money and investments towards meeting those obligations and commitments. That is what is creating this huge demand side signal. So we're now seeing um, much more demand in these markets for the outcomes, not just climate change, but water quality, water quantity, biodiversity, um, and competition for these you know, credits, if you will, in a market-based approach. So that is really exciting. Um, that is requiring us at a global scale to really rethink how we deliver the credit. So again, kind of serendipitous that we started this with an eye towards making this scalable. And now we find ourselves at the forefront when the globe is saying, oh goodness, this does need to be scalable, but at a global level. So um, I think that's one of the reasons we have been successful here is that we were right on the, the cutting edge of that just before these markets bloomed. So we were able to really take advantage of the, um, this high demand. And I think we're well suited to really meet a lot of the corporate needs um, since we designed the program in a way, as you recall, we did a market assessment that really showed um, coming high demand from corporates to actually uh, create these credits. Yeah, and I think Debbie, when we think about like that market analysis way we did way back when, and and you know where you are today, and all the members of ESMC, and and you kind of talked about you know the the sustainability goals and a lot of you know from these corporations, and and a lot of those are are beyond just carbon. But I think when we talk today, and you mentioned ecosystem services, that's where people's mind goes, right? They go strictly right to um, automatically goes to carbon, which, you know, is a major leg of the ecosystem services, but there's, you know, a lot more uh, to these ecosystem services outside the just the carbon markets. And maybe if you can visit with us a little bit more, maybe we kind of shift of, you know, what are some of the other potential ecosystem services and what are, you know, how do we stack? And, and that's, stack these services. And that's one of, you know, ESMC's aspect, right, is stacking services. And maybe uh, love to hear your views and thoughts there. Yeah. So 
I think um, when we designed the market program, we recognized early on that um, when you actually undertake a practice change within an agricultural system, whether it's in a livestock system or a cropland production system or a mixed system, um, any changes you undertake at the systems level or, or a practice change, not just impacts your greenhouse gases and your soil carbon, but it also uh, impacts your water quality, your impact on water quality and your water use conservation, um, and ultimately also your biodiversity. So we created specifically a market program that would be able to quantify all of those impacts simultaneously and either stack credits so that a buyer could take the entire stack, um, you know, value stack, if you will, of those multiple credits, or we could disaggregate them and sell them to different buyers. When we started um, this, you know, testing the actual market program in 2019, we thought that there would be a lot of interest in the stacked credits and found out there was not. Corporations had carbon and greenhouse gas commitments, very, very few, if any, had water commitments. But we do have municipalities and state agencies with water quality and water use um, needs. So we found that we were generating multiple credits and then selling them to different buyers. Now, however, just a couple of years later, we see more and more of the corporate buyers actually starting to take on both water quality and water use conservation commitments and increasingly biodiversity commitments. So that stacked program that we started with is now starting to look more value, more valuable um, to corporate buyers who have all of the above needs. So it's been just an interesting development. What I would say is carbon markets in particular are global and um, the rules and accounting requirements for corporates are much more established and settled than they are for the water pieces and the biodiversity pieces. So we, it, I think it'll still be another three to five years before we um, see corporates understanding exactly what their needs are in the water space. Right now, they are experimenting with us, purchasing these credits, seeing if they meet their needs and how they meet their needs, but that will continue to refine over time. Biodiversity is in particular, I think is something we're just at the forefront of. We just launched our first biodiversity credit in Missouri uh, soy and corn systems. That one is hyper-local, right? So the biodiversity impacts you will be seeking in the Southern Great Plains will be very different than they look in the Pacific Northwest, for instance, or in Florida. So that is going to take a lot more work because we developed the program to be harmonized and standardized at the national level. And it's turning out that the water impacts in some cases are much more local. Biodiversity is hyper-local. So um, we're building out those pieces kind of in a more of a geographic focus than a, a national level focus. So that will take more time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, in, you know my opinion on the biodiversity. I've been saying that that's one of the ones that we needed to work at ESMC from day one. And I was probably a little ahead of, ahead of the, <laughs> the timetable, but, you know, um, but I, I do think it's important. I think it's a game changer when you think about from a landowner's perspective through the landowner's lens, right? We're, we're stewarding these properties. We're, you know, 
there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of work that, and effort that goes into that. That's building carbon, but you know, I think more importantly is that biodiversity side of, of wildlife habitat and water and everything else. And how do we start adding these other services? And I, I guess another question I have for you is, what do you see as, you know, another five, 10 years from now, what are other future ecosystem services that you think may actually hit the marketplace? Well, that's a good question. So right now, um, in the biodiversity piece in particular, I think that you're going to see a lot more growth there because even financial institutions are starting to take stock and realize that there are trillions of dollars of investments that are riding on biodiversity. We tend to not think that biodiversity is a huge part of GDP, for instance, but it is when you really think about it and get down to it. So I think you're going to see a lot more focus on biodiversity, but I think it will become much more diversified, right? Um, and look at not just above ground biodiversity. So right now we, there's a lot of interest in avian species and insects, insect species, right? which right. kind of are indicators. It's like the, the canary in the coal mine. They're an indicator of the health of your environment. I think we're going to see a lot more development and um, opportunities in below ground biodiversity as well, which is fascinating in many ways, but it really gets back down to the basics of why ESMC was set up, right? Going right. back to Ardmore days right. was improving soil health which is the underpinning of not just agriculture, but economic health, like societal health. Because if you can't produce food that is uh, safe and affordable, your economy is not going to have um, one important leg of a three-legged stool, if you will, right? So I think we're going to get much more uh, specific about what exactly biodiversity means and not just the birds and the bees. <laughs> yeah. I I think that's exciting. I mean, how all this is coming together. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned, Debbie, I guess that, you know, you, you have multiple pilots across across the nation working towards ESMC. And it sounds like you, um, you know, started one there in Missouri on biodiversity and some of these other credits. I mean, we there's been multiple. I mean, I, I helped, you know, Kind of run the first pilots in the southern great plains three four years ago lose track of time that'd be um so you're we're getting to a point where you're starting to be able to start selling those credits even from those pilots and you mentioned you're about to launch um next year in 2022 maybe kind of talk about where you are on on the sell of these credits and what does that look like in 2022 moving forward yeah, so those are good questions. I will say <laughs> we, <laughs> we the first year, so we started pilots in 2019, as you point out, in, in particular in the Southern Great Plains. Um, we are just starting to sell credits from 2019 and 2020 projects um, because it took like a full cycle to really get the quantification, the monitoring, the verification down pat and to align that with corporate and buyer needs, whether it's corporates or others. So we um, just announced the first sale of credits, for instance, from a Kansas wheat project where General Mills is purchasing the carbon credit and the Kansas Department of Health and Environment is buying the water quality credits, right? One of those 
interesting projects with disaggregated credits going to different buyers, which I think we'll continue to see a lot of. Where I think we will go in the future is um, we are seeking liquidity. Right now, there's much more demand than there is supply, but it's kind of a, um, not we're not in a wait and see mode. What companies really need to understand is if I agree to purchase credits from this project, just how many will I get, right? How, what will be the issues? What are the risks I'm taking on if I um, contract for these credits? So we're starting to work through different contract arrangements for buyers, right? To be able to understand what they're committing to, what they get at the very end. And we're being much, much more specific about that. Um, so what we will see, I think, in the future is more liquidity because, again, we do know the buyers have more needs than we have supply. What we do need to work on still is enrolling enough producers across the country um, to participate in these projects and begin to generate these credits so that there is liquidity for the, you know, the, the supply side, if you will, right, to meet that demand. And once we start doing that, once we start enrolling enough growers in all of our projects, um, that is when we will start to see a lot more flows and um, buy and sell and trading, if you will. So right now, it's still a little bit in concept phase. I have yet to see a market in this space that has scaled or created liquidity. But I think we've been putting together, like putting all of our pawns on in the right place, if you will, on the chessboard to do that. And that is what it will change is we'll start seeing supply signal meeting the demand signal. Um, but the producer focus is really what is going to make this succeed. And I think these initial sales that we are seeing from our pilot projects will help to provide confidence that the system does in fact work, right? The proof of concept is there. Now we're really just talking about scale. And then that comes down to contracts, right? Contracting, how do you um, ensure delivery uh, in a way that meets the buyer needs? You know, I think one of the things you've mentioned that you know, we haven't talked about, you sort of laid it, laid it out a little bit that I think is important for the listeners to understand is, the approach ESMC took, right? We we took the approach of having multiple pilots across the country because the soils, the agronomic practices and, and systems are different across the country. And this couldn't be a one size fits all from a protocol development aspect and that we would actually pilot the protocol, test and adapt those protocols across multiple regions of the US um, is a different approach than has ever been taken before. And that's some of the reason why we started it in 17 and why the launch in 2022. But I think there becomes more assurance, as you mentioned, of everything's in place. We've, we've learned the pitch points. Those have been, you know, uh, taken, taken advantage of and, and made those adjustments. So when it happens in 2022, it should be pretty seamless. Any other thoughts around that? Yeah, you just you just made me think of something else. So one other thing we did that was truly innovative and that has truly changed the markets and the way they're operating is in the past, carbon markets were, were very refined. I'll use that term in that uh, typically protocols focused on one singular practice change and one greenhouse gas outcome. And that's all that happened in an entire project, right? 
one practice change had to be undertaken, there was no flexibility, and you just measured one greenhouse gas outcome. And we said, why would you do that? That's not scalable, that's not sustainable, right? And designed a system to look at the system-wide um, land-based approach and, and look at any systems change that are beneficial and the resulting improved soil carbon, reduced greenhouse gases, water quality, water quantity, biodiversity benefits, right? And uh, quantify all of those outcomes, right? So a much more sustainable approach. And since we launched our first protocol doing that, we have seen the registries, the carbon registries, others actually adapt that particular approach, which again is much more sustainable, did not happen but until we started saying, this is how we're going to do it. So, you know, again, kudos, <laughs> that is yeah. a sort of systems change we were hoping to see um, and it is turning into reality. Yeah, I think that comes back right to the beginning of our conversation of those guiding principles of not backing down from challenges and breaking glass and you know making making this thing work right and and we're seeing those adoptions across the board and, which is great because that's gonna that's gonna help all these marketplaces um, be more functional and which is great you know Debbie as we wrap this up you know could you share what's on the horizon for ESMC. Yes, well, we so we have our launch. Um, that's really important. Um, I think the other thing, one of the things we're doing that is really exciting is with um, CME Group, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, we're going to be holding some test auctions to do price discovery. That's one thing you and I didn't touch upon, but one thing that we also said we want to do a much better job of is transparency of pricing in these ecosystem service markets and better valuation of ecosystem services. They are highly undervalued today by society. Um, economists have previously looked at ecosystem services as you know, something that we really don't account for. We really do have to account for it and all the demand shows that we do. So I think that's the, the next stage is putting a better value and a better price signal on what producers are actually creating that is in such high demand by society so that we can pay them more for it. Well, thanks, um, Debbie. And as a producer myself, I, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, and and I, of everything you've done and your dedication and all, all your hard work. And I'm so thankful back in 2017 when I gave you the call and you gave me a no, I don't, I'm not very much interested that I'm glad I was able to persuade you to, to jump on board and look five years later, you're, you're still doing it and you've made, uh, made, you know, changes that we didn't ever think of could happen. And um, thank you so much for all of that. Well, thank you. I'll say it's a team effort, right? And thanks for being part of the team. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. So, well, thank you again, Debbie. And I just uh, love sharing everything and, and all you do. And again, I just want to remind our listeners to rate and review our podcast and help spread the word about working lands conservation. As Debbie mentioned, it's a team effort and it takes all of us to, to promote, um, to promote the, the value of our working lands and what they bring beyond the fence line as, as our podcast is called of those ecosystem services that go down to the community downstream. So, and again, uh, 
look forward to next next month's podcast with uh, Jessica Carlsruhr, the Texas Real Estate Advocacy and the Defense um, Coalition, or the Tread Coalition, which is a great a, a great uh, coalition in itself. It was um, it's a nonpartisan member based statewide association that advocates for and defends Texas landowners' rights at the federal, state, and local levels. And at Talton, I know many landowners that freedom to operate is important. So it's great to have you know, partners uh, like TREAD that are looking out uh, after our, our best uh, advocacy and, and policy from that perspective. So look forward to uh, next, next month's uh, podcast. And thank you everyone and have a blessed one. Beyond the Fence Line is brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust, dedicated to conserving the Texas heritage of agricultural lands, wildlife habitats, and natural resources. Find out more at txaglandtrust.org.